0: Hi, Esther. It's great to have you here.
1: Great to be here. Thanks, Karen.
0: So um, we're here today with Esther O'Reilly. And um, Esther, you are a writer and a math PhD student. Is that correct?
1: That's correct.
0: And um, so we got connected somehow through a shared interest in Jordan Peterson. And the method of getting connected was via Paul Vanderclay's YouTube channel.
1: Yes, Paul is creating a little sort of community. I've, I've met a lot of very cool people through through him. Well,
0: I do have some things that I wanted to visit with you about, but um, you are the one that, that tapped me, so I'm wondering if you had something that you wanted to talk about first before we get over to any questions that I might have.
1: Oh, I'm fine with, you know, wherever you want to take the conversation. I think we have a lot of the same interests, a so uh, – I think if I think if we go with the flow, cool things will happen.
0: Okay, that sounds good. Well, I'm very curious about the math Ph.D. thing because um, since I since I started down this road a couple of years ago and my brain kind of caught fire, I've gotten way more interested in math than um, than I was for the last forty years. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I keep running into these really interesting things in the math world and. Some of them make these very deep connections, and I wonder if it's just all my imagination, or if it really is like that, where math seems to go all the way down to the substructure of the universe.
1: <laughs> no, I, it's not just you. And in fact, one of the one of the ways that I myself also became interested in math was uh, seeing some of those same pat- patterns and connections with with other arts um, and with language and poetry, and also with nature and that sort of thing, because I, I began as a humanities person. And so I kind of had to be sold on math in college, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, initially, I was like, you know, philosophy, literature, history, those kinds of things, I felt very comfortable with, but math was more of a foreign country. Um, so I had a wonderful old professor, who uh, showed me the like you were saying, that, that mathematics is is everywhere, um, mm-hmm. and so that uh, that attracted me. And I've also really appreciated um, symmetry. And so I was watching one of your talks with Alex the other day. Mm-hmm. You were talking about um, the structure of a chiasm, uh, yeah. which I I love too. And so you know, I also write poetry sometimes. And I'm always experimenting with with symmetry and with with parallel structure and that sort of thing. Um, so that's yeah, it's it's a great kind of a scavenger hunt.
0: Well, the specific question I wanted to ask you, and I I, I don't think I'm throwing this at you unknown because I'm sure you're <laughs> familiar with what the Mandelbrot set.
1: Oh, you know that it actually it. it rings a bell, but I would need to, I need to Google it to refresh my memory.
0: The Mandelbrot set is this very interesting, very intriguing object that turns up when you, um, you plug in a certain, uh, function, a certain value. I forget what it is exactly. C2 plus C or something equals zero. And, um, the, the purpose of it is to determine the limits of the stability of that, um that function i guess they i guess they call it a function and what happens is it maps out an area where it's stable and then outside the area where it's stable so they they originally when they did it they mapped out the stable area with black and the unstable area with white
1: i see i yeah. see it on wikipedia here
0: yeah so it ends up with this beautiful boundary around the outside
1: mm
0: but wow. it turns out that this this object, and, and they found ways of actually coloring it in by extending the limits of stability further out and further out and giving each limit a new color. And it becomes more and more and more um, complex and beautiful, and it, it ends up looking like an LSD trip.
1: <laughs> it does. I've seen that this little animation somebody made over here at the sidebar. Very trippy indeed.
0: Yeah. But what's weird about it is that the Fibonacci series shows up in there.
1: Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Fibonacci shows up everywhere.
0: (laughs) Yes, well, I'm curious about that. But the other thing that's curious about it is over on the right-hand side where the the large shape has a kind of an indent, on that right-hand side, you can use um, its connection to the axis at that point to – to identify or or to calculate pi mm. and I kind of understand why you can calculate pi using it because pi shows up wherever there's anything that's similar to a wave, which is actually a circle, right
1: yeah i I would need to brush up on that myself to be sure that I knew what I was talking about if I tried to explain that
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, if you get a chance to look at the Mandelbrot set, I'd be curious about your take on it as a math PhD. What's happening? Why The ma- why the, the Fibonacci series shows up in the little threads that extend out from the Mandelbrot set. Mm. And it shows mm-hmm. up in a very intriguing fashion, and I really... Um, is the reason Fibonacci shows up everywhere just because it's the most efficient use of space, or
1: so like with on there? with plant growth, for example? Um, that's what I've heard that it's, it's the most efficient way. Of, uh, something about the, the angle at which the leaves um, spread themselves out from a stem. Uh, that that's that's how it, that's how it winds up. So the golden ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a connection there to efficiency and plant growth, and I would need to again, I'd have to read up more to um, figure that out. But uh, yeah, I I think I think it is it is like almost a sort of a, a divine Easter egg uh, mm-hmm. in, in a way. The Fibonacci series is. Um, sort of like a, a little signature or a you know little flourish of the pen, like I was here. <laughs> you know, oh and look, I'm I'm also here. Oh, oh and and here and oh gee, I'm over here too, you know?
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. So it, it makes me think of that quote of um Paul Vanderclay when he said, Materiality is a medium of communication.
1: Yeah, I like that idea. I think yeah. that's that's interesting to, to ponder.
0: Yeah. It seems like God shows up everywhere, if you take the time to look, so.
1: Yeah, somebody asked me, so I don't know if you follow Adam Friended, he's got, um, he's got a a channel where he tries to sort of stick up for Christians against uh, virulent atheists, even though he's not a a Christian himself, Um, so he asked me one time, do you think you can prove the existence of God with math, and I said, well, no, that, that's that's kind of a too broad um, way to try to use the idea of proof. But I do definitely think that the mathematical structure that we find in the universe is strong evidence of a creative intelligence. Um, and so it points to a God, certainly, I would say.
0: Yeah, yeah. So one of the other quotes that Paul had that I thought was um, really interesting because it's very concise is that reality is that which governs Mm -hmm. now i know that you're interested in um i think you must be interested in not only jordan peterson but you're also interested in issues of good governance because i've run into your essays on the federalist and and other places like that so i wonder um how you feel about that quote from Paul, that reality is that which governs.
1: I think it could be interpreted in a number of different ways. Um, So, um, I mean, you know, in the abstract, it seems like an intriguing thought, but I would have to have um, a little more of a context or or an example uh, to, to to evaluate it or to to say more about it.
0: Well, I've I've been pondering it for a long time, so a lot of things come to mind for me. But one of the things is um, that reality shows up in the consequences of our actions.
1: Yes, Um, right.
0: Reality shows up, uh, reality exposes our true value system. Because we may say we believe something, but then we behave in an entirely different way. So, Well,
1: uh, yes, and so this, this could get into, um, you know, the, the eternal back and forth between George Peterson and Sam Harris on the definition exactly. of truth. You yeah. know? Um, where I think, um, I think I understand why Sam is frustrated uh, with Peterson. Um, but I also understand what Peterson is trying to say. I just think that because Peterson is not a very analytical um, thinker, he's, he's more of an intuitive personality. Um, he, he doesn't always frame things in a very precise way. And so that bothers Sam because Sam's personality is, is far more ordered and regular and precise. Um, and, you know, he'll parse out the meanings of, of his vocabulary words very, very clearly. Whereas Peterson is more just sort of throwing paint on a, on a canvas and see what happens. Um,
0: well, it's interesting you would say that because I I see Peterson as being incredibly precise in the way he uses language. And um, I don't think- It can that, be,
1: yeah, yes. but it's a, little, it's a little bit of a duality in Peterson's personality, I think, that sometimes he's very precise and sometimes he, it seems, is very unclear and vague.
0: Well, I think what happens is that he speaks with a presumption that people understand where he's coming from.
1: <laughs> yes, and, <laughs>
0: and where he's coming from is almost impossible to fully understand if you haven't watched all of his lectures and read both of his books.
1: Yeah, so and I might right. I myself have to confess. I think you have me beat because you you read all the way through Maps of Meaning, right?
0: Twice. I'm on my way through at least before for the third time. Yeah, I'm,
1: I am impressed. I, I, I only read um, a, some of it one time and then I, I put it aside. I mean, I've watched the, a lot of the lecture series um, mm-hmm. and it's always fun for me to kind of sample because he's given the same lecture series in different years. And so mm-hmm. I like to kind of go back and forth and see, you know, what's what's a little bit different, what's unique mm-hmm. to a certain year, even though it's the same course. Um, so I think I understand pretty well what his framework is just piecing things together, but I have not been able to wade all the way through maps. So kudos to you.
0: <laughs> well, it, it was a strange experience because I couldn't understand him at all. And, yep. <laughs> as, and then I, as I was reading it, um, and I think I talked to Paul about this, my understanding of art and, um, the whole concept of how art and fear interact and the mm. concept of how boundaries function to generate creativity and many other concepts in art that are, that I've really internalized at a very deep level. I started right. to see some of that in his book and, and all of a sudden I was able to understand what he was saying. It was almost as though I had learned a foreign language. And right.
1: I was yeah, I was watching some of your, your conversations where, where you were discussing how how art, that, that action of, I get the hemisphere switched, I think the right hemisphere, um, that it's a way of, of producing meaning in the face of anomaly. Um, so that, you know, the order chaos axis is, is the center of Peterson's kind of thesis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maps of meaning is it's all about exploring exactly how we humans cope with the, the chaotic or the unexpected. So what you, if I recall correctly, you were saying you discovered in your art that painting became that thing for you.
0: Yes, well, I think, I think any, any creative expression that we get involved in is a way of allowing us to uh, communicate those things that are inside us at a level that's too deep for words. And so, um, you know, people say when you, when you come into relationship with another person, it's sort of bark to bark. (laughs) It takes a long time to get underneath the bark and actually get to know the person at the core where it's living and where there's uh, vulnerability and where there's um, change possible and all of those things. But, but in the general social context, it's just bark to bark. Mm-hmm. So um, when we when we attempt to creatively express those things that make us who we are, uh, all of the experiences that we've had in life, and people that we've talked to, and songs we've fallen fallen in love with, and all of those things, uh, make us see the world through a different filter than other people. And mm-hmm. so we have something unique to contribute into the world. But many times it those things, well. First of all, it's very difficult to articulate those things, and mm-hmm. secondly, even when we do articulate them, other people can't understand what we're actually saying because they have a different filter than we do. Yep, <laughs> this is the whole postmodern conundrum, right? That everyone yeah. sees the world in its in their own unique way, but but that's the function of art and music is that it and and other creative endeavors is that it expresses this underlying. Um, personality from one to the other where we begin to see what's at the heart of another person and it also helps us to see something in our own hearts you know if I look at a beautiful piece of art that that someone else has created uh, even 500 years ago I capture something of what they were trying to say but I also learn something for myself right
1: Right, and so you know that's why at the end of my my second talk with Paul Vanderclay, which I, I think you heard, right?
0: I think so. Yeah.
1: So um, I'm
0: not sure he puts out so much content.
1: He, he does. Yeah. So a lot. So a lot of I came into, and you know I, th- I think we he and I kind of had different agendas, so it was a bit awkward. But um, my my hope for for that second talk was I I came in to sort of talk about. Um, to talk about art and and different kinds of art and pieces of art and literature um, mm-hmm. that's, that's touched me because that was uh, one of the first clips of Peterson that I saw that I really loved was a, a section from a biblical lecture called Why You Need Art in Your Life. Yes, um, I
0: remember that, yeah.
1: I've watched that. It's like a 12-minute clip, but I've watched it, you know, maybe a score of times. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's so true and he talks about how the act of either making art or um, engaging with art is it's a way of stumbling towards the kingdom of god um, Mm -hmm. which i thought was an incredibly powerful uh, image and you know it really struck me how he could uh, how he could see that even as in some sense a secular man Um, and yet he's sort of um, fumbling for the, the transcendent, in, you know, um, which we all are, we all have to in our own way. Um, so then to your point about being a creative, uh, a lot of people don't really, don't know this about me who don't know me well, but I, I, I am a very creative type. Um. Well,
0: that's obvious to your writing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would, you know, I, I would, I would hope so. And then, uh, but sometimes I get tagged as, um, you know, cerebral or, uh, you know, a a cold rationalist or something like that. Um,
0: That's only because they haven't read what you
1: wrote. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, So then at at the end of my talk with Paul, he said, you know, do you have anything uh, new that you want to plug or whatnot? Um, And so I, I I have a little bit of YouTube stuff that I did before my writing really took off where I made film projects. And I said, you know, if people really want to understand me, um, one way to do that is to look at the, the film projects I've made, these, these music videos that I've created, which I, I don't talk about much because people don't really follow me for my film projects, you know. But occasionally I'll sort of forlornly try to plug one on Twitter, like, hey, this is a thing I made five years ago. I'm really proud of it. You know, thank you, thank you, both of you lovely people who liked this, you know. Um, but I get exactly what you're saying. That that that's what you point to. It's like here's how I express what I couldn't express any other way. You know, and it transcends language in some sense.
0: And and your your film projects are just wonderful.
1: Oh, thank you, thank yeah, you so that, much.
0: And and I was really just so um, so moved by them. It, it brought back the. It, the movies that I had already seen, like regarding Henry, it just brought it back mm. full force, brought the whole movie back to me and just the wonderful way that it had played out for me the first time I saw it.
1: Yeah.
0: And then to see what you did with it was just really remarkable. So.
1: Oh, thank you. And yeah, that, that one's um fairly popular, I think, as far as number of views, because it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a fan favorite. Um, I really think that's Harrison Ford's best performance. Um, because usually he's just playing Harrison Ford, you know, mm-hmm. um, but in that film, he, he had to express more of a range. And yeah, I just, I love that film to death. I know it's, you know, corny nineties stuff, um, but it's, it's sort of unexpectedly profound and, you know, pretty much nobody else of my generation is really going to know or recognize that film, but I'm, I'm really glad that my my mom introduced me to it because that it's got a special place in my heart.
0: Well, I have a strong memory of that film because the night that I went to see it, I had been watching uh, Ebert and Roper just before I went Mm -hmm. out the door.
1: I love those guys.
0: Yeah. And they had both given it a thumbs down. They said it was the worst piece of sentimental pap they had (laughs) ever seen. And then I, I went to see the movie and I thought, you guys are nuts. This thing is so deep and beautiful and profound and powerful. So they're just blind.
1: Yeah, t- blind. totally agree. I generally do like Roger Ebert, but even Ebert nods. So, so, yeah, I remember like later finding his review of that and he gave it like a one and a half stars or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I, just, he was just <laughs> wrong. <You know? laughs> yeah.
0: I understand your, your comment about feeling forlorn about the things <laughs> that, that are really important to you because I, um, uh, I really am enjoying these conversations i 'm having with people, mm. but when I put them out to my friend' circle or my family circle, nobody watches
1: <laughs> <Aww>. we 're <laughs> weird we 're weird because we we like ideas and, and and we think we think about this sort of stuff and yeah. you know a lot of people a lot of people just don 't make brain space for this kind of conversation you know.
0: Well, and the thing that's so wonderful about YouTube is that it affords me the opportunity to have this kind of conversation. How else would it happen, right? I mean, how would I exactly. how would I find a guy who's into geophysics in Illinois and have conversations yeah. with him if it weren't for YouTube, right?
1: Right, right. Exactly. And that's the, you know, sort of the 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 miracle of our our age, but you know, also the horror of it on the flip side. Um, there's an old interview with David Bowie from the 90s, I think, where it's quite eerie because he's sort of prophesying the internet and what, what the internet's going to be like. And he's like, he's prophesying the two sides of the coin. Like on the one hand, he's saying it's going to, it's going to revolutionize communication. It's going to be the most amazing, powerful tool that the world has ever seen, but it's also going to unleash unspeakable horrors and now it's like oh my goodness he was completely right
0: yeah yeah well I mean he was a creative type right so he had insights that
1: uh very much so yes yeah, that
0: <laughs> weren't available maybe to other people so I ran into something else that was in uh, in Maps of Meaning it's on page 259 for those who are plowing their way through
1: oh there's there are two different um like editions of it that are slightly different from each other and it's it's really annoyed me because I like I found an older edition um which had like a bunch of typos in it and then the Rutledge edition a lot of those have been cleaned up but then the pagination is slightly different oh. and so I you know but I this is probably what you're reading from I'm, I'm going to assume is the Rutledge
0: yeah it's or the, uh, the new Rutledge yes it's a Rutledge the Rutledge version. So, anyway, on, on page 259, he, he's talking about Homo sapiens' unique heroic thesis. Mm. That is that the nature of experience can be altered for the better by voluntary alteration of action and thought.
1: Right. Well, that's his, you know, his gospel, in a sense, as, as Paul, I think, aptly puts it, that it's, it's, you make the conscious choice to, to turn one way or the other.
0: Well, when he talks about the infinite field of potential that we face every moment of every day, um, in essence, we create our future out of that potential. Because that potential is nothing, and then we move into it, we do something, And then that choice brings our future into focus around that choice. And then we keep moving forward, right? That's the basic idea.
1: Right. And that's, you know, yeah, go
0: ahead. I was just going to say that when I read, so he wrote this, the nature of experience can be altered for the better by voluntary alteration of action and thought. And he says that's a very, very, very old idea that goes back thousands of years and that has been you know crystallized into that idea now that undergirds western civilization and our heroic thesis and all of that kind of thing Um, but it's also very similar to uh, what the quantum physicists say that the nature of reality is that everything is just a particle in a wave and it isn't anywhere until we look at it. And then when we look at it, we concretize that into material reality.
1: Yes. Whatever that means. Exactly. Which <laughs> <you
0: know. laughs> I don't think they really know what it means, but
1: well, that's the exactly joke,
0: the right. same. It, it, what, what that means is, I mean, if that is true, what it means is it matters what we look at.
1: Right. <clears throat> right schrodinger's schrodinger's potential (laughs) cat
0: well i i think it's a little a little bit different than that because even schrodinger said the the um the essence of what this says cannot be true the cat cannot be both dead and alive at the same time so there's something missing in the theory he recognized that there was a piece missing in the theory because both things could not be simultaneously true. Right. And, and so I don't know if this whole idea of the observer came after Schrodinger or not, but I know that, that the idea now is that the, the, the thing changes to a particle, the the wave changes to a particle at the moment it's observed. Yeah. So, So it's, it's where we focus our eyes. I mean, okay. That, that's at the quantum physics level, which is, you know, tiny particles. But if I, if I extrapolate that out and say there's something that relates to that in the reality that we live every day, Yes. what I put my focus on makes a difference on how my future turns out. It's all attitude. You know, I mean, these are cliches, really, but, but, it, but it seems like underneath those cliches, there's some sort of really deep understructure of meaning.
1: Well right, and that's um something that Peterson will often say is it's very strange that in in a materialistic context, we still talk like potential is real uh, because he'll say that you know we'll constantly tell each other you're not what you should be, but that presupposes that what you should be is 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 something something meaningful. It's a, it's an immaterial and yet real thing. So that's where he, you know, he'll, he'll push the acting as if, you know, officially the philosophical structure that, that we parrot back to ourselves, doesn't leave room for this. And yet it's how we live.
0: So when you say the philosophical structure that we inhabit doesn't leave room for this, could you flesh that well, out a little bit more?
1: So, I mean, a, uh, the philosophy of materialism. So, um, you know, Sam Harris's idea that we don't have free will, for example, mm-hmm. um, that we're just, we're, we're predetermined matter in motion, essentially. Um, that's the official line, so to speak. Um, that's the accepted philosophical wisdom. Um, but then, you know, Peterson is saying, yeah, but look, nobody, nobody acts like that. Nobody believes that in the sense of acting on it, which is how he mm-hmm. defines the word, uh, belief.
0: Right. Well, even Harris cannot be acting on it. Otherwise he wouldn't, take himself so seriously
1: well yeah it's it's it's, (laughs) the whole harris's house of cards collapses in on itself so fast i mean yeah
0: (laughs) yeah so so do you have a background in um the philosophy of religion or in um theology at all some of what you've written sounds as though you have some background in that
1: yeah, I have I have some philosophy background. I'm not a, a professional philosopher, but I I'm a very interested layman. I did do philosophy as one of my majors in college, um, and have have always just been fascinated by the different branches thereof. I, I like to um, I like to try to read some of the the actual philosophical literature to try to keep keep myself in in shape. Um, I'm really interested in epistemology. Um, and also philosophy of religion religion, philosophy of science um, the, those kinds of things again i 'm no expert, but I just find them very, very interesting
0: well so i am curious because I don't have any background in any of that, except what I just happen upon when i'm I sort of follow a thread and I wander around and I pick up stuff and I you know so I <laughs> about a lot of different things, but not systematically in any area but um when I think about this idea of the world taking shape before me by, by each choice that I make moving into the future that it almost as though the world concretizes in front of me, Mm. you know, a a computer guy would probably say, Oh, it's like a simulation (laughs) (laughs) that, that whatever move the character makes, then that changes the simulation around them. And, and so it's sort of like, you're building the world in front of you as you move forward right would that be considered a heretical idea
1: i don't think so um i think it's just a plain statement of the way things are i would say now where you get into interesting and potentially heretical waters is when you get into the question of what god knows um, and, and what exactly the god's eye view of all of this is so um open theism for example is the is the idea that god doesn't know the future um which i would i would say is a heresy um well
0: that's nonsense exactly yeah so tell that
1: tell that to all the open theists out there because there's there's a lot of them running around um um,
0: what, what is that part of a particular denomination or is that just a philosophical group of thought or what 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 characterizes open theism?
1: Um, good question. I don't know if there's a particular denominational, um, if, it te- if that tends to cluster within a particular denomination or not. I think Greg Boyd is uh, is an open theist. He's a fairly well-known uh, theologian, writer, thinker. Um, but so... Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's nonsense, but not everyone agrees with me. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Well, I guess I got to learn something about open theism.
1: There's also so so I like the idea. This might interest you if you looked it up more, but uh, Molinism, um, I find compelling, which is the idea that God, God sees all of the, the possible things that you could have done, um, but he's not controlling which path you actually um, pick. So that, you know, it's, it's not open theism because it's explicitly uh, affirming God's perfect and complete um, knowledge, but it's not denying that there are other things that you, that you could have done. Um, at the same time, it affirms your free will to choose which possibility to uh, actualize
0: well this fits very well with what Alex and I were talking about in our uh, most recent conversation and we were just we were exploring entropy mm.
1: yeah, I listened so, to a little bit but not the whole thing
0: yeah well I, when when you're exploring something that that deep and complex there are some pauses <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's yes.
0: very irritating to listen to because sometimes the pauses are a little bit lengthy. We're going to see if there's some sort of a, an app that can eliminate the pauses or eliminate the excessive length pauses in a, in a video, so I'm going to look into that.
1: But, I mean, um, any, any film editor, you, you could just um, you know snip out segments.
0: I'm sure, but the snipping process is quite tedious. It can not be yes there's 50 or 60 pauses in a row, you know but anyway this idea of entropy is that a new way of explaining entropy that i just happened on to is that the idea that entropy actually is describing the spread outness of something mm. rather than describing disorder increasing disorder it it's describing the increasing spread outness
1: yes right right
0: and um and there's a particle physicist named Dr. Sharon Glotzer, who has done a lot of work with synthetic particles of various shapes to see what happens to them when you remove all the space around them. So when you, when you restrict their spread outness and take away all the space, and, and they have no space around them and they have no forces acting on them, they will Mm -hmm. spontaneously organize into a crystalline structure. Mm -hmm. And she said in her video, she said, and this was on the basis of entropy alone, Mm. but it's not really entropy alone because she took away all the space. So, so she, she was an actor in, in it, right? It's not just yes. that created this crystalline structure. But the thing that was interesting to me that Alex brought up is that, well, yes, a crystalline structure is actually when there is um, the least amount of information because it's frozen. It's um, the crystalline structure is already perfect in its structure. So it, there's no potential there. It's like uh once a crystal is made that's it it's 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 at its maximum potential well i mean there's there's but this gets into information entropy when when and information entropy is low, that means there's no information so this very constrained group of particles would be at low entropy, low information, but it is a crystalline structure mm. but what that made me think about is that the way God constructed the universe, he, he did put some constraints around us, but the minimum number of constraints so that we would have the maximum opportunity for development and creativity and um, developing individuality and all of those things. And that in order to do that within a universe in which things aren't until you look at them, <laughs> she I mean, he he has to be so big that he could that that he can manage that and that he i mean just on a very small level if you've ever played a silly computer game like my daughter has this game Mario Kart where you're following this little char- you're you're in this you're you're a little character in this little car and you're driving along this road and the choices that you make the world creates up in front of you and and so you know, different things will come into view that come into view because you're going down a particular road that you chose just at that moment. So whoever created the game had to be thinking ahead. What choices might these people make? They might make this choice or that choice. And therefore, we have to create a world that takes advantage of, you know, or that opens up for them if they make a particular choice. Well, God created a world that is so perfect and vast and amazing that it can open up all of the various choices that would we any of us could potentially make about anything which is right just he, he knows
1: he, that's the thing he knows what each one of those choices could be so like he sees yes. all of the potential all, all of the potential futures yes. before they collapse into the actual yes. future
0: and right. so that thing is called molinism
1: yeah
0: how do you spell yeah. that
1: M-O-L-I-N-I-S-M okay cool yeah it is very cool and of course this also gets into geeky questions about whether God is in time or outside of time
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which gets into the, the A theory versus the B theory of time and very cool fun stuff there um, I like the idea that Boethius had um, Boethius was a philosopher and i'm gonna get his century wrong if i don't look it up
0: b-o-e-t-h-i-u-s
1: yes yes okay 400s ad italian um politicians and then the the emperor threw him in prison and so as as one does he wrote a philosophy book in jail (laughs) (laughs) it was was called uh, the consolation of philosophy and so he imagined that uh, philosophy was personified as a woman who came and uh, visited him and gave him insight so um, he puts forward what, what I think is a, a very satisfying picture of God's relation to, uh, to the created world in there, which is God as, as being on a mountain, looking down and seeing each life laid out, sort of like, well, Boethius we wouldn't use this analogy, of course, but like a film reel where um, it's almost as if from God's perspective, the life has already been lived. And so he can see each, uh, each moment of it, but God himself is outside of the confines of time. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I, and I think, I think God has to be, I'm, I'm not really satisfied with models that place God in time, but that's, you know, it's a very geeky back and forth. Well.
0: I guess you can, you can make models however you want to from whatever set of ideas that you want. But I mean, if you, I'm, I'm very simple. I just look at the Bible and the Bible says that space and time came into existence when God spoke the world into being. So.
1: Oh, sure. At the yeah. same time, I think that the Bible leaves a lot of room for, for play though, in some ways. It it you know, certainly
0: does. That, that's yeah. one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is, um, this idea of um, how each word gains in meaning over time as we mature as individuals, but also um, God's word also grows in meaning over the course of history. But it's not that it grows in meaning, but our capacity to understand the depth of meaning that is already built into God's word, our capacity grows over time in one sense because of the increase of our knowledge and that we have more and more understanding of how the universe is constructed. But in another way, our understanding decreases over time because of our loss of trust in certain historical truths and, you know, I mean, many, many things happen that corrupt our understanding of God's word, but there are other things that enhance our understanding of it. And in a way that there's aspects of the word that open up to me now that I've become interested in quantum physics and mathematics and things like that, that I never would have seen before I was interested in those things. When I go back and I read the Hebrew or the Greek of some of those passages in Genesis, all of a sudden I see, you know, much more clearly that God and his fundamental, um, I don't, I, words fail me, but anyway.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was thinking, so you've read, I'm sure you've read the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, Uh Well, it's um, what you're saying makes me think of the passage in Prince Caspian where Lucy, uh, sees Aslan again for the first time since The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And she goes, oh, Aslan, you're bigger. And he goes, no. <laughs> yeah. And he says, no, no, my child, you are bigger.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I was also thinking about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. So over time. And that's something Peterson
1: talks about a lot. Yeah. yeah.
0: Our historical understanding can grow and our, our um, just vocabulary can grow. All kinds of things can grow as we, as we mature. And as we mature as a, as we mature as a people, I don't think that's actually happening, but, um,
1: but I oh, th- we're Clearly we're so much more sophisticated than those, those ancient people with stuck in bronze age superstition, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. Who were writing philosophy books when they were imprisoned in 400
1: AD. Uh, kindly yeah. do not attempt to clout the issue with facts. <laughs> yeah.
0: But, um, the, um, uh, at the same time, our wisdom can decline. But what, what opens up the, our capacity for more wisdom, I think, is suffering. Mm-hmm. So um, you, you even see an increase in wisdom globally after the Second World War, where for, for a period of time, there was big hunger for God and big hunger for God's word. Like in Japan, after the Second World War, Um, the Japanese people were actually calling the Americans and asking them to send missionaries, send missionaries. We need to understand more about God. And so there was a, there was a a moment, there was a climate of opportunity for a moment where people's capacity for meaning had increased because of the suffering that they'd gone through globally.
1: That's, that is interesting. I hadn't heard that about the history of, Japan after the war. Do you have a, a resource on that? Or a-
0: well, I was a missionary there for three years, and that was what oh my, right. that was what people told me. So I mean, it may it may just be
1: um, the wisdom handed down or the yes, the yeah, master, yeah, the, yeah. I'd, I'd forgotten about that. You've been but, so um, many. You've done so many interesting things. It's hard for me to keep track, <laughs> but,
0: but I, I visited in many people's homes when I was there. And, and some of the people, especially in some of the smaller villages would, would bring out photographs that they had uh, that their parents and grandparents had taken of them with the American military who had come over and were helping to reconstruct their villages and helping them put things in order. Wow. And they, they were so thrilled to have had those men be a part of their lives. Mm. And, um, yeah. I mean, there was one time that I was at some sort of a, now this, I can't remember if, if this actually happened to me or if somebody told me this story, you know, sometimes memories get, my memories of Japan are a little bit corrupted because of all the bad stuff that happened when I was leaving Japan. Um, but one of the things that I remember and I, I think it happened to me was that I was at a meeting and someone at the meeting brought up something about um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki Mm -hmm. and a Japanese gentleman stood up in the back of the meeting and he said you know if those bombs had not dropped two million more Japanese soldiers would have died because they never would have given up ever Mm -hmm. and not only all those millions of Japanese soldiers would have died but also many 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 more Americans so we look at those things in history and we just think, you know, how could that, po- how could we have done anything like that? How could that possibly have happened? But from the, at, from at least one of the generations of the Japanese people, they saw that as a net positive because although it was extremely destructive and a lot of people were lost, it could have been so, so, so much worse.
1: It's very interesting that the, uh, uh, Japanese an older Japanese voice would be yes. making making that argument um, yeah I I, I personally have, have always been opposed to the bomb um, mm-hmm. I you know I still see it as as intrinsically wrong um, even though yes it's certainly true I'm sure that, uh, that all those millions of soldiers and lives would have been lost otherwise um, so you know that that's kind of my take on it but as a sociological point, it's very, very interesting that, that you, that you heard that.
0: Yeah. And, and I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm not in favor of the bomb. I'm not, you know, I'm not in favor of any of these stupid wars, but, but there are things where life is just so complicated that if, if we try to just come up with some simple little solution out of our own ignorance, um, We're not taking enough things into account, right?
1: Yeah, and that I mean
0: is insufficient.
1: (laughs) Well, right, and that um, you know that very broad truth that sometimes there there are no solutions to a problem. um, That was something that I I learned early on because in my civics education, my parents gave me Thomas Sowell to read. Um, Mm -hmm. So his book, *The Vision of the Anointed* was Mm -hmm. a very important book uh, for me, very formative. Um, And it's always stuck with me how he puts this, that he says that there are no solutions, there are trade-offs and compromises. And so I think that's one thread of my attraction to Peterson because, um, you know, Sol will talk about the, the anointed vision or the unconstrained vision versus the tragic vision. And when I encountered Peterson, I saw, ah, okay, here's a guy who comes bearing a tragic vision in -hmm. some sense, because Peterson looks, he wants to ameliorate suffering. That's, that's his heart's desire. You know, he looks around and he sees people who need help. And yet Peterson has been around long enough and is wise enough to understand that there's no, you know, kind of magic wand that you can wave to make, make this all happen. Magically and instantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can only do so much.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've i always loved Thomas Sowell. <laughs>
1: yeah, there you I go. Got,
0: yeah, I got <laughs> interested in him way back in I don't know, the late 70s, I think. Um, and I, I first got interested in him because of a monograph that he had written about the minimum wage law and um
1: that's kind of dry and <laughs> it interesting
0: yes well i was i was really interested in the economic turmoil that we were in in the united states in the late 1970s mm. and going into 1980 just before reagan was elected and really we were on the verge of an economic catastrophe and i was trying to understand it. So I was reading every book I could get my hands on and I eventually stumbled into Austrian economics, but, but I also, you know, began following people like Thomas Sowell and, uh, both he and Walt Williams have the same view of minimum wage law and that right. is minimum wage law is extremely destructive to minorities and to people who are low skilled workers and, yeah, and it was always interesting to me, here's somebody who has some truth to give, and it's based on data, mm-hmm. and yet they get absolutely no traction in the press. This, this has been known for, what, I don't know, 40 years now, right? And, and uh, the media will not cover these guys and will not present their ideas and will not use the opportunity to educate the American populace. So way back then, I started seeing there's some problem here with the way that, that our media are communicating with the average person. So you have to go looking for your own information. And that's when I really started to do lots more research about things, trying to understand how the world was really put together. Because I knew I couldn't really trust the newspapers and the magazines and those things to do my work for me.
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about the... <clears throat> Well, the, the, yeah, the, the minimum wage question and, and the general. Well, now we're in our, our own economic slump here in the the twenty uh, teens. Um, there's a book I'm working on, a review of, uh, by a journalist named Chris Arnati. Mm-hmm. and he's. Yeah, you might have might have heard of him. Did he? uh, yeah, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, if I I really. I, I, I would highly recommend the book. I I really loved it. Um, at the same time, it's interesting because Arnaudi is still very much um, a classic leftist in the way that he, that he thinks about poverty and, um, and people's economic situation. And so like I heard him in one uh, interview, he just sort of burst out with this, "just just give people more money, man, <laughs> you know? And I'm thinking, I don't think that's gonna help the way you think it's gonna help, Chris. Like, I don't, I don't see that as as um, a fix, you know. And and he himself, he's smart enough to to admit that he doesn't have a clear plan in mind. So you know, he'll then do like a little self evaluation, say, "I don't know. I mean, yeah, okay, I know that's kind of wishy washy, or I don't really have this figured out," which I appreciate. But um, he, because he's a leftist, he's still sort of instinctively reaching for. This idea that if well, if we just gave more material aid to the working class, then then that would um, at least go a long way towards fixing their problems, but okay, how is how exactly is that going to play out? Is it going to play out in the form of a minimum wage, and what other unforeseen consequences might that have? And this is, you know, this is where I think Sol is right on. Um, the the economic ecosystem so to speak is this extraordinarily delicately balanced thing um, and so if you just like shoot a sudden influx of money in all of a sudden um, that can web out in all kinds of, of ways that in the end may actually not benefit the people you're trying to help so good intentions uh, don't necessarily equal good policy, you know? Well,
0: and I I think one of the bigger issues underneath all that is the loss of freedom. Mm. Because what a minimum wage law actually says to the individual is you do not have the right or the power to make a contract for your own labor at a price that you are satisfied with and that your employer would be satisfied with. You don't have that right. Mm -hmm. You can only work, if you can find someone who's willing to pay you more than your time is worth. So for, for a person who has no skills at all, mm-hmm. if, if they're willing to work for a very small amount of money in order to gain skill, yeah. then if they have the right to do that, they can go out and start doing something and they can make something of themselves. They can gain the skill, then they can go to another employer and, and demand more money and they'll get it. Mm -hmm. But if someone has no skills and they cannot contract their own labor for the price that they are willing to accept, then they have no choice whatsoever because the employer is not going to pay more than the value that they're getting. If they are forced into doing that, then they'll, they'll hire fewer people and they'll hire better people who have more skills so that they can get more value for the money because that's just the way the world works
1: yeah that that's the very astute point you know they, they can't they can't get on the train so to speak to begin yeah. with yeah um exactly. yeah that that's something so i don't know if you follow glenn bowery john McWhorter, um but i
0: only peripherally because i i follow ann althouse who is a um, um a law professor, well, she's retired now, but she was a law professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And she so, does a blog, and she is occasionally on their Blogging Heads show. Oh, okay. And I, she's yeah. a fascinating gal, so.
1: The, the two of them have had some very interesting uh, conversations on their YouTube channel together. I think you'd like it because they delve into all kinds of issues, including
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: economic questions, because Quarter comes at it from, you know, sort of a smart leftist perspective. You know, he's he he's a very outside the box thinker, and so I still really enjoy listening to him. But you know, at heart, he's still kind of a lefty. And then Glenn Lowry is the the voice of conservative reason. You know, on the mm-hmm. other side. Um, so I, I remember one time they had a conversation about exactly this question, um, and and Lowry was you know just kind of a little bit harshly, but realistically saying, look, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna hire a guy if you can't do the work, you know, if you can't do the job. Um, and mcWhorter's like, oh, well, but surely there has to be a way to, to get unskilled people into the system, you know, or surely there has to be some kind of a safety net or a way to ensure that they're able to get into the system. But then the, the astute point that you're making is that actually Something like a minimum wage law might make that harder might make that more difficult um, it makes and it's it also right, and it's also going to limit the number of workers that a given employer is going to feel like he can hire because he 's like i have to I have to pay each of them at least this much, so oh sorry i, I can't can't hire any more than this many you 're out of luck, you know.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, actually, if you look at the data going back to the beginning of the minimum wage law, I think it goes back to the 30s, maybe something like that. Um, And Thomas Sowell has the chart that shows that before the minimum wage law was instituted, that black unemployment was actually lower than white unemployment. Mm -hmm. Especially especially in the category of young males. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that the the minimum wage was actually instituted at the behest of the unions because Mm -hmm. the unions knew that if the, if the floor was raised, then the unions could also ask for more money because, well, we're worth more than minimum wage workers. And so they, they wanted to put a floor in there so that they would have a better um, advantage in the negotiating process.
1: Interesting.
0: So ever since the minimum wage law was instituted, the division between the, the um, minority workers and the white workers has increased, 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 increased. And, um, and we know how catastrophic it is now, although in the last few years, it's gotten somewhat better in this country because I know that, that um, African-American unemployment is lower now than it was a couple of years ago. So, so there's been some improvement, but um, yeah, it's a, it, it's a, intractable problem that's gone on for a long time because it's socially so uh, feel good radioactive. yeah yeah well it, it's radioactive to talk about making any changes to it because yeah. everybody feels good to support it and, and the people who understand the problems with it are afraid to speak out against it because it's radioactive so it's like so many of our problems today that we can't really resolve them because we can't really go back to the source of the problem the healthcare system is another example. I think that mm-hmm. that we're not looking at where, when the problem started. The problem started way back in the '60s, '70s. It didn't start yesterday, but we're we're patching all the the stuff that's going on now instead of going back and unwinding and figuring out where we went wrong.
1: Yeah, this is very true, and and you know I have to say Republicans and Democrats alike have um, contributed to that particular absolutely
0: yeah, it's a mess yeah because nobody wants to talk about the source of the problem and that's that's true about everything in it's true about what goes wrong in our own human nature we don't want to we don't want to look at the source. you know where does my hypocrisy come from yep we want to take a good look at that you know
1: yeah exactly I did want to so maybe this could be a segue um i i have heard you talk some about um hierarchies and, and mm-hmm. peterson's um way Peterson thinks of hierarchies and it seems like that's um out of sync with uh more of a christian view if i if I understood your your thesis correctly um i th- i think i i would i would want to be careful not to misread Peterson there though so like he'll you know he gave a talk once where he was talking about this, like the 10% of people who are kind of at the bottom of the, the rungs of society. Yes. uh And Uh he's like, there's, yeah, he's like, there's nothing for 10% of the population to do. And that's, I don't know what to do about that. It's this terrible, Mm -hmm. tragic thing um, Mm -hmm. that you you just kind of have to sit with until it hurts you (laughs) basically. Um, But, you know, he's not, um, he's not, Putting statistics like that out there, in order to push a kind of, you know, Hobbesian or Nietzschean f- frame, uh, mm-hmm. where it's like, and your job is to, is to climb the dominance hierarchy, and and double take the highest most or or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, he he sees it as you climb you climb up the ladder so that you can be of use to people below you on the ladder, hopefully, ideally. I
0: I totally get that when he talks about that. In in Mm -hmm. fact, I thought that his explanation of how the people people at the top are able to stay there only when they take care of the people all the way up and down the hierarchy. Right. If they're not taking care of those folks, then somebody's going to take them out. And that—that's yeah. when you have really unstable hierarchies, right? And you know, we see this in companies. You can see it in—you uh, can see it in communities. You know, if somebody corrupt gets into office, then there's going to be somebody that comes along the side and says, "Hey, let's take him out," and—and uh, and that kind of thing happens all the time. When I was positing my my other view of, I wasn't really trying so much as to talk about a new. View of hierarchy, although language gets confusing sometimes, as to point out that Christ is—he um, is the the center towards which. we are drawn, we are drawn towards that center, okay? So it's like, it's like the asymptote is drawn towards the, the axis, we're drawn towards that. So, um, Which is different, I think fundamentally different than climbing the ladder. Almost every other religion in the world has some idea that we can work our way up to heaven, that we can climb the ladder up to heaven. But in my my view, Christianity is that he reaches down and takes our hand because he knows that we can't, we are not sufficient to make it on our own, which was an idea that I resisted with every fiber of my being when I was 30 years old. I mean, I remember somebody inviting me to some music thing at at their church and I went and I'm listening to this corny song. And in the corny song they're taught and before they sang the corny song, they said, "Yeah, you know, and I was trying to climb the mountain on my own and and I realized that I just couldn't make it, and then I reached out and Jesus took my hand and took me up the mountain, you know, and I walked out of that thing, thinking, "I don't need anybody to help me up any mountain. I can do it by myself, <laughs> but within six months, I was singing that corny song. <laughs> <laughs> Right, it's still one of my favorites.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Well, there. So then, yeah, that's so. That's that's Peterson's hill that you're climbing. You know, climbing up the hill with your with your cross. You know, yeah. um, and yeah, that's that's Peterson's. Well, you know, he has a number of flaws, but that's one flaw. Um, he still he still has to figure out that he needs he needs Jesus to carry him up the hill.
0: <laughs> well, I I think the part that you lose then is the joy. Mm. I mean, I, I, I I don't know. These things are so complicated. So I like what C.S. Lewis says when he, when he talks about that in, for him, God does not judge a man by his actions, but he judges him based on, his actions in light of the capacity that he has already been given. So for example, someone who grows up in a, in a Christian home with loving parents and they're given every opportunity in life and yet they turn out and they're rude to people or, you know, or Mm. dismissive is going to be judged more severely than some guy who was abused his entire life. And, and the very best that he can do one day is be kind to a cat. <laughs>
1: that
0: you know, he makes this he makes this comparison that that we look at the surface and we see, oh, this guy is usually mean, and this one time he's kind to a cat, and you know, what is that to us? But but God sees everything in us and he sees what we've been given and what we do with that. And um and then uh, of course there's this other thing where that Peterson talks about all the time that I think is incredibly amazing is the ideal is a judge. Yes. Right? Right. Which is just a very deep truth. And at least part of the way that's true is judge not lest you also be judged. Because in the way that we judge others, we're exposing our own expectations. Mm. We're exposing our own expectations. So then that sets up our own judgment of ourselves. So when I judge somebody else for not doing something that they should have done or doing something that they shouldn't have done, I am putting myself under that same curse of the law because I've, now I've created that law and yet I'm not living up to it. Yeah. So, you know, I've exposed myself basically. So, um, I think all of those things make life, very complicated, and so Did you listen to, to be judging what another person thinks, or or I, I even forget the thread of where we were at. But
1: <laughs> well, so it made me think. I think I can pick it up in this way. So I don't know if you listened to Peterson's um, conversation with Bishop Barron.
0: I, I got to about half of it,
1: but I, I don't remember where the conversation. But they they had actually a long conversation about. Um, about properly judging people and about the um how the nature of love sometimes can be can take the form of of a loving judgment um so you know baron advancing this very you know classic catholic idea that to to love is to will the best good of the other um Mm -hmm. And Peterson suggests that maybe one reason why a lot of churches have dropped the ball and why a lot of people are maybe more attracted to Peterson than to some churches is that Peterson, with his message, offers more of a challenge, um, and whereas a lot of churches have a, a kind of um, an amorphous, squishy um, lack, lack of a challenge and, a, and a, a leaving people where they are instead of um, instead of spurring them on to be better than they are. Um, and Barron agrees with that, you know, he's not offended at all. And he says that he thinks a whole generation of, of priests were trained in the sort of Rogerian approach, um, for Carl Rogers, I think is the name of the psychiatrist, um, which was, you know, a very, very sympathetic, non-judgmental mode of interaction. Um, where you just listen to the person, um, and then you encourage and affirm only—you know—it's it's only words of affirmation, um, mm-hmm. and that's dangerously one-sided.
0: Right. Well, I, I remember when I first became a believer, I met a woman who said something to me that I that has stuck with me ever since, and she said. <clears throat> Jesus loves you just the way you are, and he loves you too much to leave you there.
1: <laughs> well, right, exactly. Yes. And I think that's I think that's exactly right. And yeah. actually, the, this goes back to one of the most interesting aspects of the, the book, Dignity, that, that I mentioned earlier by, by Chris Arnati, um, is that, you know, on the one hand, Arnati is, he, he tries very hard to kind of fade into the background of other people's stories he tries to just kind of present them for people to make their own evaluations without passing judgment on them himself Um, but at the same time he begins to visit a bunch of little churches uh, like like little small poor back row churches and he begins listening to stories of people who uh, got clean from addiction Mm -hmm. and he he says you know, I never heard a, a success story um, that happened without the help of a church <laughs> or, or a faith community coming around a person and welcoming them with open arms. So, you know, there was no, you know, the churches were open access, so to speak, no, no credentials needed to get inside. But once you were there, it's like, OK, if you want to be part of this community, here's some standards that you're going to have to abide by and we'll we will come alongside you and we'll help you to meet them if you're willing to put the effort on on your side to make it work. And he said, that was like the only, (laughs) the only proven method. And so he's like, I'm not a religious guy, but this is, I've come back to tell you all that this is what I discovered. Make of it what you will, you know?
0: Yeah. So did he, did he spread out that um, understanding at all to some of the people that he met who may have contributed to their own difficulties to poor choices that they made in high school or you know in life
1: It's very complicated you you know you'd have to read the book i think he I think he's internally conflicted um, you know because he like on the one hand he has this this impulse he never wants to judge somebody like even if even if the person is a junkie. He he's, he still feels like well but you know what circumstances might have driven him, him to make those choices you know maybe he felt humiliated maybe he felt like he had no other options and then the crack house seemed like the most welcoming corner of the world to him and that's how he got sucked in and so yeah you know he he. So he's always thinking about kind of, you know, in that leftist fashion. He's always thinking about the structures around the individual, the circumstances around the individual. Mm-hmm. And yet he's got this inconvenient fact that the only way that these, that these people have gotten clean is by meeting people who love them enough to set standards, you know, to, to set rules.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and to pick up the heavy load and start moving forward.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. exactly. And that's, I mean, I think Peterson really, is spot on. I think he has a kind of a painfully apt critique of a lot of church culture, both Catholic and Protestant. And so, you know, this is definitely cuts across denominations. No no one um, denomination can be sort of smug about this here. I really, I think he's absolutely right that many churches have failed to present that challenge.
0: Well, and I, I'm, I don't even want to lay it at the feet of the church I think it's a natural human tendency to avoid that truth I mean I I I noticed it in myself a few years ago and I had been a believer for probably 30 years before I had this aha moment one day in some areas of my life I'm not living my values I have certain values that I you know that I have expectations of other people and I have judgments about how the world is supposed to work and all those things. But there's areas in my life where I'm not living my values. And one of those areas was in in the area of eating. I had really gotten out of control in eating and let food become kind of my controlling mechanism in life and and um, it's where I found my peace and my joy and all of those things. But I would have never said that, you know, yeah. I, I, I didn't recognize it at all for what it was until I got clean. Yeah. Once I got clean of the addiction, then all of a sudden I thought, wow, (laughs) all these years I've let most of my mind share be on what I'm going to eat next and when I can eat and what I can eat, whether I was dieting or not dieting, everything was around that focus. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't blame that on the church. Well, that was my own. That was my own choice. That was my own trail that I took. Instead of turning to Christ in my moments of need, I would, you know, turn to my candy bar that was stashed in the closet. And uh, I, I just think that people are way more complicated than we like to admit. And for any, well, of us, we have to we have to come to a place where we can see things more clearly. And so I was kind of on my way out of that hole when I ran into Jordan Peterson. and mm-hmm. So you so had already
1: I mean, kind of put yourself yeah, together. That. I was yeah. already on
0: my way out of the hole. But so much of what he said resonated on many levels for me in many of areas of my belief. And so many of the things that he said resonated with things that God had taught me through the years. And mm-hmm. I could point to various places in my Bible. Well, yeah, here and here and here, you know um so especially listening to his biblical lectures was just Mm. like drinking in cold water it was so great to
1: so much so much amazing stuff there you know people will people will ask me they'll be like wait a minute you're aren't you kind of an evangelical i'm like well i mean depends on what you mean by evangelical but kind of sorta yeah well i don't understand why why you would like peterson because so much of what he says is is you know, sort of intention with Christianity or with with a more evangelical kind of Christian thinking, and I'm like, well, wh- where does it say that I can't be interested in different kinds of thinkers and <laughs> and minds and, and people that I don't completely agree with? You know, I I just think he's a fascinating guy. You know, at the biblical lectures, like you were saying, even though they're you know wildly unorthodox in in certain respects, I I just found them as I started listening to be a fount of just wisdom about human nature you know um because over and over again he just hits the spot um of of what we are like you know how we how we behave how we are um what you know whether he was talking about uh well like he's there's one clip i went back to a lot where he talks about the fear of god um where he talks about twisting the fabric of reality Mm -hmm. with the with the choice that you make for ill and he says you can't twist the fabric of reality without having it snap back at you um and reality rules (laughs) reality rules yeah exactly so that that's an amazingly powerful um image um or you know when he talks about how human beings sort of atrophy without having a challenge. And he goes, I mean, you could lie around and just have pablum infused into you for the rest of your life. But um, you're actually, I mean, yeah, life isn't about being being happy. Life is about contending with something. Um, and some of that was, was wisdom that I think I, I really needed to hear for myself at my point in life because um, I'm a very... A very cautious person. I'm a very risk-averse person, um, um, and I've always been—I've always been a very good chess player. So I, I like to have all the options laid out and all the different contingencies, so that I know exactly what the best path is going forward. So uncertainty is something I dislike very much. I really dislike living in uncertainty. I dislike, you know, sort of venturing out or You know taking a risk or making a radical life change and so listening to him talk about how you need to do that and 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 he'll say if you don't contend with it if you don't confront it head on it's going to come and find you and so you might as well confront it um it's you know it it was really helpful it's sort of like i i see myself as kind of like on the edge of, of life, kind of looking out at my life, looking down at my life, and he's, you know, he's the voice behind me, and he's kind of giving me a little little nudge, like, you know, <laughs> go, out, go out there, kiddo. <laughs> go, go, go do it. You're never going to live if you don't, you know.
0: Well, I have those days when I procrastinate about getting on with the painting,
1: mm-hmm.
0: because I'm at a place where I don't know what to do, or maybe I'm at a place where I need to start a new one and I don't even know what, how to start. And so it's easier to procrastinate. It's easier to clean drawers or, um, watch Paul Vander videos. And, and,
1: well, you know, you could clean drawers. Well, cleaning drawers is a good thing though, but yes, I see what absolutely. you mean. Absolutely.
0: Well, after I, that was one of the big things I did after I first I stumbled on Jordan Peterson was walk around with my headphones on organizing the whole house
1: <laughs> Yep, <laughs> yeah, yep. you listen um, to him while you clean your room it inspires you right <laughs> yeah.
0: But one of the things that that his whole uh, Chaos and order thing really said to me was Okay You have to go out and confront that dragon that yep. sitting there. That's your dragon Maybe yep. full of snakes right now, but you have to go out and confront it and that's the only path through you know? Yeah, And there's something I, about that language that just kind of gets that steel going in your spine, you know? And uh, yes. You know? Yeah.
1: Great way of putting it. I was going to say another thing, and this is something I think we have in common. Um, it, an, another thing that early on really grabbed me about Peterson and was one of the things that most impressed me and inspired me to go deeper was how, how well he seemed to understand suffering um, mm-hmm. and how profoundly he spoke to it. Um, at, a, at a very vulnerable level. You know, he, mm-hmm. he, he displayed a level of, of rawness combined with wisdom when, when speaking about suffering that it's, it's unique. I haven't really seen it in, in anyone else, like Christian or non-Christian. Um, mm-hmm. It's just his own very particular way of, of speaking to it and speaking as somebody who myself you know i i've gone through some things that you know kind of grew me up quickly you know some some very sad dark things in some ways ongoingly sad things in my life that i just have to work through and deal with and so hearing him talk about that in his own life it felt like oh wow i found somebody who understands. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I found someone who knows what this is like, and it was, you know, I don't know him, he doesn't know me, but it was like listening to a friend or or a companion who could, in some sense, be an understanding voice Mm -hmm. in that, where it's like, let's just be honest, let's just admit that, now, I I disagree with him that life is suffering, and and there, I think you're spot on, that that's, that's too much, but life certainly can be composed of suffering to a great degree and and life can be it can be difficult to see the meaning and suffering in the moment while you're living through it yeah it's, that's something christians are have a hard time admitting because we always want to be able to see the meaning uh right away but we can't always and that's why we need an eschatology you know
0: well yeah, and it's and we want to see the meaning in it right away because we want to offer some what we misattribute as uh comfort to the person who's suffering when in actuality that's the worst thing you can do is to offer them some pat answer, you know. Yeah. If this is why this is happening to you. Well, that that is not helpful, you know. Nope. <laughs> so, um, but but we do that because we can't handle the pain. I, I mean, I don't want to be associated with that person's pain, so I'm going to try to fix it for them so I don't have to feel their pain with them.
1: Oh, no. There is a psychologically astute comment. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, it's just, that's just, I'm just reflecting on myself. I know oh, that yeah, it's I true. That. I, yeah. I run away from it, especially after I went through a lot of stuff for a long time after that i really would run away from other people's pain because i just i i just couldn't i just couldn't handle anymore you know i just couldn't handle it at the moment um, and it's only, it probably took me 10 15 years before i got to the place where i could willingly go back in and try to walk alongside somebody who's really struggling through difficult things and really be there for them and and i judged myself a lot during that time like how can you run away from these people that you know really need somebody but you know we we do what we can I guess um I I just got to understand at some place you know and
1: yeah yeah but I mean nothing nothing is wasted in the end
0: yeah that's for sure I mean and, and I find now that that there when i am helping somebody who's really suffering really in a in a difficult place i can just be real with them you know yeah. and i can listen and i can cry with them and
1: yeah
0: and um and i wasn't capable of that before so i know that something fundamental happened in me
1: yeah yeah well that that could be a great note to uh to end on. I don't know if you had another uh question to throw my way or no topic
0: i I, I, I think that sounds like a good place to um and and maybe we'll talk again one of these days
1: yeah definitely there there's definitely other things that um, that I had in mind that would make uh, great topics for another talk so pretty sure this won't be the the last combo that we have.
0: <laughs> you here to share what the other topics are so I can be thinking about them?
1: Oh, well so you you sent me um uh this this video that I'd found on mathematical challenges to Darwin um which is is something that I independently am also very interested in and uh so it had David Berlinski and Steve Meyer and David Gilarcher. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. talking with the Hoover Institute. That, that is a very rich, very fun topic. And I actually have a copy of the monographs um, from this symposium that they were talking about in the 1960s where oh, wow. the, the yeah, where the, the computer scientists came together with the biologists and had a big um, sort of showdown where the you know the computer scientists were saying, Look, we don't think this is working and the biologists are like, well, you don't understand. Oh, we don't think you understand. And it was this wonderful sort of uh, shouting match, but it was all transcribed and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and written down and printed. But um, now it's you can't actually buy it anywhere. You, you'd have to go hunt it down in a local school library or something like mm-hmm. that. But fortunately, I'm close to a school re- library where I was able to do that. But that could be, there's a preview of coming attractions. That could be uh-huh. something we get into more next time.
0: Yeah. And are you also familiar with Dr. James Tour?
1: Oh, yeah, very much. Yeah, I love his work.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, let's do that next time then.
1: That's awesome. Great
0: great talking to you, Esther.
1: Great talking to you too, Karen. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.